Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Nishida. Thanks for joining us. As always, if you like the podcast, we'd be infinitely grateful if you help us spread the word. This week, we'll be talking about an exciting carbon removal solution known as biochar, what it is, how it works, and what potential it has to help us reach net zero by 2050. But before we go there, I want to share this week's reason for hope. Australia has just recently announced it'll be closing its biggest coal plant earlier than anticipated. The plant, operated by Origin Energy, is north of Sydney and has really become no longer cost competitive with the big growth in renewables in Australia and was slated to close, but they just announced they'll be moving up that closure by seven years. So, That's awesome. Yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah, I know that Australia gets a lot of their power from coal. I think it's like somewhere around 60%. Uh, so they're not doing very well on that front. <laughs> <laughs> no. But this is a step in the right direction. It is. I think that's exactly the way to, to look at it. They're relying on coal both, you know, in terms of energy production and, you know, they obviously export a lot of coal to places like China and mm. unfortunately now Japan. But, you know, seeing their largest coal plant become no longer cost competitive is is a pretty exciting thing. It sort of speaks to all the progress that we've made with renewables that, you know, regardless of incentives, that the economics now are are in our favor. And so, you know, they're not going to be able to operate. Yeah, it's a good sign for sure. So before we delve into the topic, biochar. You remember that show, Captain Planet, when you're a kid? And they're like, Vaguely. Earth. And they would do like, air. And then they would all like join up and then Captain Planet. They all had one ring or something for one of the elements or whatever. And then Captain Planet would come at the end. <laughs> and I, that kind of reminds me like, biochar would be like one of the one of the things that they say you know oh you're taking us back (laughs) taking us somewhere (laughs) yeah indeed well before we hop into you know our interview on biochar we thought we would step back and kind of remind folks when we're talking about carbon removal what it is and and why it's important so carbon removal is really series of methods focused on pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and analysis by the, you know, the National Academy of Sciences and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC forecasts that, you know, deployment of carbon removal is critical both in the U.S. and globally for achieving the emission reduction targets we need to by 2050. So all that is to say, even with rapid investment in in emission reductions, we still are going to have to be ramping up carbon removal techniques to help offset the difference. Right. So based on some of the analysis that had been performed, the United States you know, could need to remove as much as two gigatons of CO2 per year by mid-century to reach net zero. And you know, for context, that's about 30% of annual greenhouse emissions it's a lot. US. It is a lot. And we better get going. Know, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. And and if you look globally, you know, scientists predict that that number needs to be on the order of of 10 gigatons to get us to net zero. And that that will need to continue to scale up to as much as 20 gigatons by the year 2100. You know, again, getting at the fact that 
even if we stopped emitting tomorrow, you know, we obviously have too much CO2 in the atmosphere. And to get us back down to safe levels, we're going to have to have help beyond, you know, sort of the natural cycles that Mother Nature has in place. Our, our guest today, Axel Renan, is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Net Zero, a climate venture leveraging biochar to perform long-term carbon removal. Net Zero extracts carbon from agricultural waste in tropical regions, developing countries, and converts it into permanent soil amendment and electricity. And the great thing about this model is it maximizes both the social and climate impact. Prior to launching Net Zero, Axel was for 23 years at, at Boston Consulting Group with various client and international leadership positions. He holds a master's degree in engineering as well as a master's in business administration and excited to, uh, to have him on the podcast. Axel, welcome to Climate Optimus. Very nice to be there with you, Jason. Well, let's start you out with a, a basic question and you know, hopeful one. When you think about you know, efforts to address climate change, what, you know, what makes you hopeful? Well, I think in the last few years, we've passed a kind of point of no return. No return in the public opinion, because now the reality of climate change um, and the mobilization, especially of the younger generation, is there. I think a point of no return in at least the large corporates who are really now embracing the topic and you know more and more committing to net zero targets and committing very seriously to that, uh, in part pushed by financial markets, in part pushed by you know the their customers, but they are really serious about it. And I think states also have moved from, okay, let's do plans and we don't really believe in them to a point right. where they, they start believing in there. And including, we've seen at the last COP, China and you know a few other countries that were kind of in the, still in the mode, well, this is not for us, not now, you know, starting to commit. So, so now we, we have, I think, a strong alignment and willingness to act. Obviously, this is coming really too late. Um, I was at the Rio conference in 1992, and oh, wow. all the facts were already on the table. Everything right. was known. And we've been kind of procrastinating. There's been a lot of climate denial and so on. And so I think what the positive view today is, you know, now people are really ready to act. And, you know, I keep a kind of optimistic uh, eye on the fact that things are starting to move for real. For real means there's some money and very significant money allocated to building solutions to decarbonate uh, everything what we do. There's, you know, a public opinion that will not let the government off the hook. And very important, there's a kind of financial ecosystem that now knows this is this will happen for real. And so it's pushing everyone. Yeah, I, I certainly, I think from where I sit, sense a, a similar momentum. And so it's good to hear you say that, you know, but equally, you know, I, I've been aware of climate change for a long time. So yeah, hopefully, you know, now it's it's a it's a race against the clock, and we're able to to rise to the occasion. Well, let's get to uh, the topic I, I want to learn more about, which is biochar. Let's start off with a basic question, which is like, you know, what is biochar for people who may not have heard of it, and 
how does it, you know, how does it sequester carbon? So biochar in a way is a, you know, very ancient solution. Biochar is very close to charcoal. It's, um, it's the result of heating biomass. Um, so it could be wood, could be crop residues, pretty much anything, you know, veg coming from the vegetation. Um, and you heat that at very high temperature without oxygen. And in that process, basically, you extract the carbon that is contained in plants. Plants' dry biomass is about half of the weight is carbon. And by heating this biomass, you basically extract a significant share of the carbon that is content, contained there in a very stable form. So biochar, if you look at biochar, it looks like a bit charcoal powder. You know, it's black, very light. Maybe, you know, most people would see when you buy so sometimes, you know, bags of charcoal to do your barbecue. At right. the bottom, there's a kind of powder that remains. And biochar is, is very much like that. It's done a bit differently from, you know, typical charcoal, typically at a higher temperature, but looks a bit the same. And biochar is a product that has multiple usages or impacts. The climate impact and your question relating to carbon sequestration is that um, basically by producing biochar, you stabilize carbon that would otherwise go back into the atmosphere. So if you, if you think of you know, what we learn in elementary school about the cycle of carbon, you say, okay, plants grow. And when they grow, basically through photosynthesis, they suck up carbon, CO2 from the atmosphere to build their plant body in a way. And then at some point, plants die uh, or are harvested or whatever, and they decompose or they burn. And during this process, the carbon that was in the plants goes straight back into the atmosphere. A very, very small share remains in the soil if the plants decompose on the, on the soil. Uh, but the vast majority of the carbon goes back into the atmosphere. And so there's a kind of annual cycle that actually we can see when looking at uh, atmospheric concentration of CO2. You see little blips every year because plants grow in the summer you know, and capture carbon and then decompose in the winter. There's much more plants in the Northern atmosphere than in the Southern atmosphere. And so it's kind of linked to the, uh, to the seasons. With biochar, you stop this process. Basically, you don't let the carbon captured by plants go back into the atmosphere and you convert it in a very stable form of carbon. And that's basically the carbon removal effect. To the difference maybe with other ways to capture CO2 from the atmosphere, I think what is very interesting in biochar is that you leverage a process that nature invented, you know, billions of years ago, photosynthesis. It has been refined by nature over a very long period of time. And it's super efficient. Right. You know, we can't beat it. With all the technology and so on, we haven't found a way with, you know, so little water and so little energy, just solar energy, basically to capture carbon. So <laughs> biochar leverage this capture part by nature and then use a bit of technology, but it's really low tech, you know, it's not rocket science, but use this technology to basically extract and stabilize the carbon. And so you have a kind of gigantic carbon pump from the atmosphere by plants. And then at the back end of this pump, you get the, the carbon, you stabilize it, and then you put it in the soil. Um, and then comes the kind of second usage of biochar. This carbon is actually very useful when put in the soil. 
biochar has some properties that basically improve the soil health and so improve crop yields. And the nice thing is that this product is super stable. So if you take you know, some plants and you put them in the ground after a year, two years, basically almost nothing remains, has gone back into the, the atmosphere. In the case of biochar, it's, it's stable over hundreds of years. So you, you kind of hinted at this already, but wondering what, you know, what are some typical sources, you know, of, you know, feedstock or biomass that, that we would use to produce biochar? So basically to produce biochar, you need biomass that is first relatively dry. Um, and second, that is wood, I'd say woody. Actually, there's a very broad range of things that can be converted into biochar because they're either naturally dry or not too difficult to dry. So you would say, of course, wood. You would say leftovers from uh, corn, for example, from rice, from cotton, from coffee, etc., etc., etc. So actually, there's if you think about it, there's a lot of residues that you know could be converted into biochar. Today, most of the people producing biochar produce biochar out of wood because it's easier, um, okay. and because it's mostly companies that operate in North America or in Europe. And here you have renewable wood, um, you know, the, so it's not a deforestation. It's basically wood that is cultivated to be harvested. And part of the wood, especially the leftovers for branches or the, the very thin uh, pieces of wood and so on, can be shredded and converted into biochar. But there's much more feedstock that can be used. And that's, I think, the beauty about uh, biochar is that a lot of crops, basically when you grow them, I'm, I'm going to throw kind of very average and rounded numbers, but you know, half of, the, of, of what has been growing is edible and the other half is a waste. There are many instances where actually the separation of the useful and the not useful part of the, uh, of the crop is done in some kind of central processing plant. If you think, for example, about rice. Rice, you harvest the rice, but then you need to separate the rice grain that you're going to be eating from the little shell, the husk that is around. And right. here you do that in a plant. And so at the exit of the plant, there's a huge pile of rice husk. And it's a nuisance, actually. It's an environmental problem uh, also. And many countries, people just burn it creating you know other health hazard because of the the, the the fumes so you know the nice thing about biochar is that you can find things that have no use branches things resulting from uh, clearing woods for example to avoid uh, forest fire or leftovers from many many crops and that's a huge potential ipcc estimates that the potential of biochar is to remove around one to two billion tons of CO2 per year from the atmosphere. So this is massive. And that's because there's massive amount of plants, residues that are just there. And that every year we just let rot or burn and go back and let the CO2 go back into the atmosphere. Which I guess, you know, makes it really appealing that you have this, you know, feedstock that's readily available and, and would otherwise, it sounds like in many cases, just be, you know, a nuisance to get rid of. There's a concept which is 
of course, additionality, which is very important, which is, of course, what you do needs to remove CO2 from the atmosphere that would not have been removed, you know, otherwise. Otherwise, you're just, you know, removing another way something that would have been removed. So typically for wood, that can be a question. Imagine you have, you know, sawdust uh, from wood. You could, it, it's great to make biochar, but if you think about it with sawdust, you can do building material or, you know, lots of other things. And so here, making biochar, maybe it's a carbon that is a bit more stable and that will remain out of the atmosphere for a longer time than if it was converted into plywood and maybe would go, you know, in construction, but maybe for a few decades and not for a few hundred years. But it's not fully additional. So what you want to go after for the climate impact is to go after things that no one is using, things that are really burnt or left to rot. Because here, every piece of carbon that you, you know, convert into biochar, this is carbon for sure that is additionally taken out of the atmosphere. Yeah, and I think listeners who may have caught our episode on carbon sequestration more broadly or you know, carbon credits understand this idea of additionality. But it, you know, it's obviously a critical distinction when we're talking about dealing with carbon emissions is we don't want to just be trading. Um, we want to be pulling out carbon that would otherwise go back into the back into the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. So you know, let's talk about your company for a minute, Net Zero, um, and kind of where you're focusing and why you're focusing where you are. Yeah, so Net Zero, the, the company I, I co-founded, um, basically wants to leverage biochar in a slightly different way than most people do. Uh, we focus on tropical developing countries. So many people would think, well, this is going to be difficult from an operational standpoint and why not start doing that you know i'm french why not doing that in france like you know other biochar companies are doing in canada in the us in finland in germany in france and so on and so forth there's basically two reasons there the the, the first one is that the volume of suitable biomass in the tropics is huge uh, you know the tropics uh there's lots of plants, you know, the kind of the collective imagination you see, you know, lots of uh, lots and... of forests, lots of, you know, things growing. There's a, a lot of agriculture in those, uh, in those countries, of course, to feed the local people, but a lot of products that we then import in us in developed countries, like coffee, like cocoa, like coconut, and all these generate, you know, lots of residues in, you know, developed countries a lot of the leftovers from agriculture are converted into something, into bioenergy, into food for animals, can do construction material, and so on and so forth. In developing country, this is not the case. So back to the additionality point, what we do is totally additional and can be done at huge scale. There's about 2 billion tons of suitable agricultural residues in the tropics to produce wow. biochar. So this is staggering as a number, and most of it today has no use. The second angle is that in the tropics, soils in general, it's not the case everywhere, but in general are poor and acidic. And plants don't like soils that are poor and acidic. And adding biochar here has the highest multiplier effect on crop yields. And this is very interesting because these are poor countries that depend a lot on agriculture. So 
basically by going in the tropics, you have a very favorable input system with all the, the available bi biomass and an output in the local soils that is, you know, giving lots of local benefits to people. Um, and then the little, the last little tweak to the net zero's model is that production of biochar is a self-sustained process. Basically, by heating the biomass, you generate the energy that is needed to heat it. Oh, that's great. But there's actually too much energy that is produced. And so the additional gas, which is called syngas, uh, this additional gas, what we do is we produce renewable electricity. And if you think rural areas, developing countries, very often you have just 20, 30% of the people who have access to electricity because there's not enough power generation uh, capability. So by bringing electricity generation in remote areas, you actually create another big benefit for people. And so this is what net zero is about. It's about fighting climate change by removing CO2 from the atmosphere, but also helping local people in tropical developing countries providing them with a product that can improve their soil and their crop yields and so their standard of living and that can bring electricity uh, where it's needed. So, you know, long answer to your question, but uh, it's a very deliberate model to to be in the tropics. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to hear that, you know, obviously the promise of biochar, but the fact that it has these different sort of co-benefits that are associated, right? We're, we're getting rid of carbon. You're also... You know, helping these farmers and then providing electricity in an area where, you know, it's certainly not abundant. So maybe that leads to kind of an obvious question for some folks of like, well, then, you know, what are the funding mechanisms for Boucher? Like, why hasn't this taken off before, right? It's, you know, has this, all these valuable things that it produces. Yeah. Or, or in general, because you might, it's true. Many people think, well, you know, this is a technology that existed, you know, Actually, man has been making charcoal for thousands of years, so no technological barrier. It is known that putting carbon in the soil has lots of benefits uh, for agriculture. You know, it was known to pre-Columbian uh, populations in South America. So you think, okay, everything was known. Uh, making biochar is no big deal. You know, there should be biochar everywhere. How come there's no biochar? Right. Um, and you know, it, it can be at first sight. Some people say, well, so the fact that, you know, some people are kind of promoting biochar is suspicious because if it was a good idea, it would be available everywhere. The issue is really simple, is that the economics of producing biochar and selling it for its agricultural uh, usage don't work or don't work well. And basically either you see that as a NGO model and you say, okay, some people are giving me money to buy a machine to produce biochar and then distribute it or sell it at very low price to the local farmers, and maybe it can work. Or no, and then you have to sell the biochar at super high prices in Europe and North America for very niche applications. Right. And, and so basically that has kept biochar in a kind of little corner, you know, with, you know, very good results, difficult to find the economic model. What changed in 2020 was that there started to be funding from carbon removal. Basically, IPCC in 2019 uh, kind of validated biochar as a carbon removal solution. And then the year after, the first carbon credits on biochar 
were issued and sold and actually sold at a high price. And so that changes the economics of biochar because all of a sudden there's an additional source of income, which is actually very significant. And then if you do it in the tropics, like what we're trying to do, it's even more attractive because if you think about it, you take agricultural residues that have no value. So something that is intrinsically very cheap and actually is a waste today. And you convert that into three useful products. You convert that into a carbon credit because you remove CO2 from the atmosphere. You convert that into a soil amendment that improves agriculture and you convert that into renewable electricity. And so you have a business model where because of carbon credits, now you have something that actually floats quite well. That, you know, provided you can produce the biochar with equipment that is not too expensive, then you have something where you take a waste and you convert that into three value-add products. And, you know, that's, that's what is making now biochar attractive all over the place, and especially in the tropics. Yeah, so exciting, exciting potential that you know this need for removal of carbon is is creating this uh, this market for something that has the potential to do not only help us with climate change but do good beyond just pulling CO two out. So you you hinted at this already, but you know what potential does it have to help us in terms of reaching our climate targets? Well, maybe we need we should go back to the climate targets. So you know the climate target is to be you know hopefully net zero in 2050. The IPCC scenario is about halving the emissions in the next 10 years. But once you have reduced everything you can reduce, there will be a part of our emissions that is almost impossible to eliminate. And this is 5 to 10 gigatons per year. Biochar, according to IPCC, can the, the maximum potential is 1 to 2. So biochar will not solve everything. But biochar order of magnitude, it can be 20% of the solution. And I think that's, that's something, you know, it's a very big number because if you think, uh, you know, we go back to the 5 to 10 uh, gigatons at the required price for carbon credits, you're talking about an industry in 2050 that could be around $1 trillion. Carbon removal globally, $1 trillion. To give you an idea, it's same order of magnitude than the power generation today, globally. Uh, so you, you can see the glass half full and say, wow, 20% of huge number, this is a huge number. Right. Some people might say, yeah, but you know, this is just quote unquote 20% and how are we going to do the rest? For the moment, carbon removal is mostly planting trees, reforestation and so on. And you can't, you can't remove five, gigatons by planting trees. There's just not enough land surface. There's not enough water. Biochar is one tool in a set of tools that needs to be activated. And if we want to remove the 5 to 10 gigatons that are needed, we need to do everything. We need to, de- to do all the tree planting and all the biochar and all the other high-tech uh, technologies. Yeah, it's it's wild to try to wrap your head around it. And, yeah. and the scale of change. It's very, very exciting, place. but... It shows that, you know, we we are not out of the wood on, you know, fighting climate change because reductions will be crazy if you think we need to halve emissions in the next 10 years. You know, how are we going to do that? And then we need to build a humongous new industry out of nothing, you know, in the next 30 years. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I can't think of another time in human history when we had such a big technological and logistical challenge in front of us. But, you know, being a guy who likes to look at the glass half full, I, it, it, it is exciting that we can, you know, we can get a head start with things like biochar, which are, you know, existing and, and scalable, where, you know, listeners will know from some of our other episodes that there are other technologies out there, but that those still need time to to really mature. In the end, I think if we were back at the Rio conference, we could say, okay, let's bet on one technology. Now it's too late. So now we, be, we need to be all in. It's a little bit like the COVID epidemic. We didn't bet on one vaccine. We said, okay, we'll try everything. We'll try the old technology. We'll take the uh, new technology and, you know, we'll first of all, to prove that they can work, and then we'll scale all of that as quickly as possible. And I think here it's a bit the same. There's no time. And I think the wrong way to think about carbon removal is to say, oh, first reduce and then remove. Because right. first reduce, you need to do it. This is great. And every everyone, every company, everyone needs to remove its emissions, switch to renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. But if you wait until you've reached the low point of reduction to say, now let's remove. Well, you look around and say, how do I remove? There's nothing to remove. Uh, there's just a few trees and you know this is not going to do the, the, the volume. So the issue is about scaling today all the solutions. Maybe some of them will prove you know, more effective or less effective. But if I had to bet, I'd say that we will need everything yeah, and I like your, you know, we, we talk about it here as well, you know, climate optimists, the need for sort of all of the above, you know, that given that we don't have the luxury of time. So I think one thing that, that some folks might be asking is, what do we do to ensure that carbon removal isn't sort of an excuse for companies to kind of continue their, their existing ways, that they aren't having to reduce first and then remove what they can't? Well, I think that's one of the core issues and a lot of debate around this uh, this topic, which is, you know, tightly linked to what we call greenwashing. I think if you have, as a company, if you're kind of only trying to, you know, take the mark on carbon neutrality and you have a leeway of saying, okay, I can buy those $3 per ton carbon emission avoidance. I'm not really sure where they come from. And actually there's a broker has packaged, you know, a number of things there, but they guarantee me that there's, you know, 50,000 tons of credit and then I buy them for a very cheap price and then I can claim I'm carbon neutral. If companies can do that, you know, then you, you, you would think what's the incentive of doing better. And, you know, I, I'd go a little segue, but there's, there's still a lot of that going on. When you read, right. you know, why don't you buy, you know, carbon neutral natural gas? I think it was, by the way, great marketing to call natural gas natural, which is not natural. <laughs> it comes from the ground. <laughs> uh, but, you know, back to, to your question, when you hear about, you know, this tanker of natural gas, liquefied natural gas is carbon neutral, you know, these are the cheap $3 per ton common credits, and this is greenwashing. If you want to be serious as a corporate, you can't buy carbon credits at $3, 5 10 or $20 per ton because you're buying uh, emission avoidance, not removal. I think there's a sensitivity that is growing in the public 
mind around greenwashing. And a number of companies now are snapped on their fingers saying, well, no, 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 this is greenwashing. And, you know, uh, we've seen you, we, we, we caught you. Still, are, are, many are still trying or are trying to bundle, you know, a few high quality carbon removal with a lot of cheap carbon credits from avoidance and say, oh, we are carbon neutral. And look, we have, you know, those very nice ones. It's like when you're doing, uh, uh, you know, processed meat and you're mixing, you know, <laughs> a bunch of things, you don't really know where they come from. And then you say, okay, <laughs> this is a nice hamburger. Um, and so you want to avoid that. I think the public opinion, now is getting sensitive to that. This is great uh, because it will limit greenwashing. The, the, the drawback is now everything that is called carbon credit is suspicious. Sure. And even the high quality ones. So maybe at some point we need to come up with another name because you know carbon credit is like, oof, what are we talking about? You know, how come something be worth $1 per ton or $1,000 per ton? Now back to your question, companies, they have a choice. They can pick you know, the low quality or the high quality. If they pick the high quality and if they start to pay 50, 100, 200, $300 per ton, you know, they are going to do that after they've reduced everything they can. Because reduction you know, is for at least the, the vast majority way cheaper. So in a way, having quality carbon credits that are sold expensive is an incentive for companies to reduce everything they, they can. Because if they say, we want to be net zero just by buying removal carbon credit, it's going to cost them a fortune. And I think there's a great role for you know leading corporates to say, we will buy removal carbon credit, although we have not reduced yet everything, but we will start buying to secure future supply, even if they haven't not reduced everything. But then this is a benefit for the planet and globally, because if people start to buy today carbon credits, for example, from Net Zero, my company, that will help me fund the development of the R&D and the new plants that will produce biochar. But stay away from the greenwashing, stay away from claiming you're carbon neutral because you've offset at $2 per ton. This is really you know, not the way to go. Yeah, it makes me think of those all the Land Rovers I see driving around that have, you know, carbon neutral on the side of them and, and knowing that that, you know, clearly came from, you know, cheap, questionable uh, carbon credits. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were in this period where some people are still trying to not only get away, but build a bit of confusion in people's mind, you know, and I think that's bad. Yeah. So it's complicated, but it, it sounds like while there are businesses who get it already, it's educating more of the business community and perhaps more of us individually to, that there is value in purchasing those credits now and that if they are truly committed to you know helping address climate change that there'll be some of that that investment up front exactly and so i think in the end it boils down to individuals um this whole climate thing you know and the fact that governments and corporates are you know I'd say over the last five years or so, been kind of all of a sudden, yes, yes, climate is important. It all comes from individuals. Uh, the mechanism is very simple. Basically, when public opinion starts to say, climate change is a reality, we are really worried. That creates an uncertainty in the future. The uncertainty is, you know, at some point, 
something will have to be done and carbon will have a price or will have limitations of emission. Investors start to think, Oof, what if in 2030 or 2040, there's a carbon tax and carbon starts to cost 100, 200, $300 per ton? You know, I'm investing in a business. How is this business resilient to, you know, a $200 per ton cost of CO2? Right. So the investor calls the CEO and say, well, can I show your numbers with uh, carbon at 200? And for many industry, the picture is ugly. They're out of business or, you know, big, huge drop of profitability. And so the investor says to the, to the CEO guy, you know, <laughs> we are not sure when there will be a carbon tax or when there will be a cost on CO2, but there will be very likely because we see all the public opinion mobilizing and the politicians starts to act because they want to be reelected. And so the action today creates uncertainty in the future, but this uncertainty in the future, when we model it today in our business plan, this is very worrying. So please do something. Right. And then the CEO says, okay, I promise I'm going to do a net zero thing and I show I can reduce my emissions. And so I will depend much less on carbon emissions. And so my business plan is saved. But after a couple of years, the investor goes back to the CEO and say, how far down the road are you to your net zero thing? Because we know <laughs> the first steps are the easy ones. So you should do the first steps now, not push everything towards the end. And the guy says, oh, we are still building the plan and nah, 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 nah. it can work for a year or two. But at some point they need to act. And you know, so basically this whole thing is that because individual mobilized today, it creates uncertainty on the cost of carbon in the future. So it creates worries today from the investors that pushes corporates to act. And this is what's happening. It's not because all of a sudden, all CEOs have become you know, convinced of you know, the need to save the climate. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you know, uh, underscores that each of us individually you know, within our own circles, within, you know, with our own politicians, you know, have a role to play. But uh, I like the hopeful message. And maybe we leave it there. Maybe that's a good spot because I know we could keep talking <laughs> biochar for, for a long time. At least I could. Well, Axel, uh, thank you so much for coming on to Climate Optimist and, and sharing your knowledge with us on a really exciting topic. Best of luck to you as you, you know, ramp up your venture. It's exciting to see. Well, thank you for having me and, you know, it was a pleasure discussing with you and, you know, and I think, you know, what you do in, you know, bringing the climate topic to people so that they, as individuals, start to, you know, act on their little sphere, but also act on the overall ecosystem is, is really fundamental. And, uh, you know, I thank you for that. We do our best. Thanks. So Todd, what were your uh, takeaways from the interview with Axel? I have to be honest, when I heard the title of this topic, I was really like, oh man, is this going to be a snoozer? You know what I mean? I was like, oh, I don't know. How am I going to get pumped up about biochar? And uh, really, as soon as he started talking about this stuff, I started to get really interested. And I think you can feel and hear that he has a passion about this stuff. And if anybody wants to hear more of what he has to say, I think, Jason, you said he'd done a TED Talk before. You can go yeah. to the company's website of Net Zero 
and they have some really cool information there and they've got a video they put together that really is a cool little way of explaining how biochar works indeed and we'll we'll include you know links to both of those on our on our website yeah so i I thought that was all great and i think he's a great communicator but i really appreciated his honesty too though about kind of the situation we're in we've kind of bungled the last (laughs) 30 years i think he said something about you know he remembers the conference he was in in the 90s so i appreciated that procrastination i understand that i can tell you a lot about procrastination (laughs) well you you hold a doctorate in procrastination is that i do i know all facets of it (laughs) i'm a wizard i'm a wizard of high council on procrastination but there was a lot of cool stuff a lot of stuff i didn't know i liked how he talked about this process and how it's really tied in with the natural process which is what you want to do right you want to try to somehow leverage natural processes and find an opportune time to kind of insert some technology. And that's really kind of what they're talking about doing is they're kind of leveraging that natural process and then storing this carbon and redirecting it to good use. Especially it sounds like it's really helpful in the regions he's working in to help them with their soil management. Right. The co-benefits, as you would describe them, really make a great case for for doing this in in the tropics because you know in addition to obviously the huge you know amount of carbon that we could potentially remove you have all these other benefits for these communities that frankly are getting impacted by something that they didn't create in the first place right it's it sounds like we really have to invest in this stuff now it doesn't sound like it's something that we can wait 10 years and then start investing in no. so we got to we got to start now. I also looked up some numbers and it it looks like we're pulling about, you know, 40 megatons uh, of CO2 currently and you know, at those numbers we have to increase this by, you know, 100 fold by 2050. What did you think? My takeaways were were similar to yours when you look at those figures you just talked about in terms of where we stand today on on carbon removal and where we need to be there there isn't time to waste and you know that's where i think government investment has a has a huge role to play and right if you know if you look here in in the us we we did make a little bit of progress with the infrastructure investment and, and jobs act there was some you know funds set aside some substantial funds to help with some major demonstration plants for you know direct air capture another carbon removal technique but no mention of you know of biochar, uh, no mention of bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage, and so I think there's some, there's some improvements that need to be made in terms of ensuring that we have funding streams and research dollars where they're needed for for all of these technologies. Anything that has you know obviously has promise. Yeah, and I think if we get that kind of carbon market going and figured out with the greenwashing and and what real credits are worth, I think will be huge. Yeah, I think a lot of the, you know, the work that got started in advance of, you know, the last climate conference, COP26, on cleaning up the the carbon credits market and, you know, being more stringent in terms of how you do the accounting, that's all going to be essential as well. Because, you know, I think as Axel pointed out, you know, the economics right now for doing things like biochar and reforestation, a lot of that's driven by those, those carbon markets. And so, you know, as you have companies that are more forward thinking and, you know, taking their their responsibility for, you know, offsetting their emissions seriously, 
when those those bigger dollars start flowing, you want to ensure you've got a robust process in place. So you're right. not ending up with the, you know, the questionable carbon credits of the past. Definitely. So I guess that leads into, you know, what can we do as individuals? And I think the most immediate is, you know, in conjunction with the Build Back Better Act, which we've talked about, encouraging, you know, your your senators as part of putting together a new version of that bill that can that can pass the Senate and ensuring that we include incentives for things like biochar that help scale it up and that there are, you know, more research dollars set aside so we can answer some of these, you know, remaining questions to really quantify the potential, the the benefit, et cetera. So that's a wrap. Thanks as always for for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co and don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast.